I want to just briefly remind you that Nehemiah is mostly a narrative, and I just want to, just a little bit of a biblical reading principle, is when we read the Bible, we have to be careful that we read the scriptures as it was intended for us to receive them. Now, there are parts of scripture that what we call divine imperatives or commandments. These are the ones where we really don't have an option. God is telling us to do something. For example, rejoice in the Lord is not an option, right? Kind of rejoice, if rejoice if you want. No, it's rejoice in the Lord or be holy as I am holy. Those are called divine imperatives. When we read narratives like Nehemiah, it's, it's, we have to be careful that we don't turn a prescriptive story, a descriptive story into a prescriptive story. When we read Nehemiah, we don't want to draw principles and say, this is what you have to do. Nehemiah is more of an example, a model. It gives us principles. It shows one way out of many in which God worked. And from that, we can be inspired. We can learn. We could learn from both the successes of people in the Bible and also their failures, right? So I just want to make sure we have that in mind as we read through the story of Nehemiah. Now, today's text comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and his gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, that the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beam for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now, to your word, and ask that you will speak to us. Help us to see your sovereign plan working out in our lives. Help us to see that you care for the details of our lives. Help us to see that everything we went through in our lives were, was not in vain, Lord. Every joy, every sadness, Lord, you are sovereign and you use all of those to help us be who we are today and that we may serve you in this kingdom, in this context right now. Help us to see that through Nehemiah chapter two today. Help us to be inspired, help us to be ever more devoted to the work that you are doing in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let me just briefly recap Nehemiah chapter 1. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we broke it into two parts. In the first four verses, we saw the classical movement um, of how people get 
convicted to do something, right? We saw the classical movement of inquiry and awareness. Nehemiah asks, what is happening? And, and as he becomes aware of what is happening in Judah, we move into the second part, which is empathy and compassion. He becomes deeply, deeply concerned for the well-being of the people of Israel, God's people. They are in trouble and in great shame, for the walls are broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the Bible tells us his initial reaction was one of great grief and sorrow. And so he's moved by compassion and empathy. And the third thing is he responds with conviction and action. And the first thing he does is what? He fasts and prays. Okay, so that's the classical movement of awareness, empathy, and conviction. It's not just Nehemiah, but throughout history, that's how people have done great things for the church and for society. Awareness, compassion, and action. And yet, and last Sunday, we saw that Nehemiah in his prayer to God, we saw that Nehemiah, by praying to God, aligned what was happening. His interpretation of the events, he aligned his interpretation to God's story. This is also important. So many times we think prayer is about asking God to do something, forgetting that God has already told us that he knows what we need before we even ask. God knows what we need. So prayer isn't really trying to beg a reluctant God to do something that he doesn't want to do. Prayer actually helps us see what God is doing and align our story with God's story. And Nehemiah, you know, there were competing interpretations of what was happening. Nehemiah could easily buy into the, into the view that God's, the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, was not powerful enough to protect his people. That the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Persians were greater than Yahweh and therefore... Israel fell as a nation. That was one interpretation. Another could be that God abandoned his people. God gave up. These are stiff-necked people. I don't want to deal with them anymore. And so Nehemiah could have fallen into any of these kinds of interpretations, but he remembered because he was rooted in the word of God. He remembered the words of Moses in Deuteronomy that God said that if my people sin, I will scatter them. But if they repent, I will gather them from the farthest corners of the heavens and bring them back. Nehemiah remember that, and he remembered God's story, that what was happening to them was not out of God's control. God was still sovereign. This was part of God's plan for his people. And Nehemiah aligns himself with that story. And it's so important for all of us. We tell ourselves stories every day to make sense of what is happening. When we have a hard time, when, when things aren't going well, or when things are going well, Success or failure, we are constantly telling ourselves stories about who we are and what, are, what the purpose of our lives are or what the meaning of our lives are. And it's so important that in prayer, we come to God and say, God, help my story. Help what I believe about myself, who I am, and what you're doing. Help it align with your word and what you say. And that's what prayer really is. And that's what living in faith is is living by the reality that God defines for us. That you're not abandoned, that you are loved, that God loves the world, right? I love that song. We don't, we, we don't need to be casting heavy stones, right? We could be gracious in our relationships because God 
has been gracious to us. And today, I, I'm gonna, we're going to look at three things um, really quick. Uh, I want to focus on the first one, the longest, and the second two I'll, I'll just cover. But what I love about Nehemiah is how pragmatic he is. Nehemiah is pragmatic. And through Nehemiah, what I am reminded is that God calls us in a specific context and locality. What I mean is that sometimes when we think about Christian faith or God's story, it becomes kind of esoteric, kind of meta, right? Like God loves the world. God is redeeming creation. Love your neighbors. And it's all wonderful. It's all wonderful. But sometimes we go like, okay, well, what does that mean? And the beautiful thing about the testimony of Scripture is that God actually, God of the universe, above all heavens, came down to earth as a Palestinian, as a young baby, a Jewish baby, at a particular time in history. It was contextualized. He embodied a person. He embodied a location. He embodied a race. He embodied a gender. He, he became specific so that we could understand that though God's story is meta and universal, he also cares about the details of your life. Not a hair falls from your head without God knowing it. Who we are and our specific context matters. And I want you to see this through Nehemiah's testimony because um, I know, I know uh, we, do you guys remember the ending of chapter one? Because the ending of chapter one, Nehemiah says this. He says, this is the last verse. This is verses 10 and 11 of Nehemiah chapter one. It says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. This is the big prayer. This is a meta prayer, right? This is like big God. And then he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That's specific. That's like my, my lot in history. This is, this is where I am. This is who I am. And then the next line was, I love this verse. It says, now I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. This prayer is like a wonderful example of both seeing the big picture and contextualizing it into your life. Nehemiah says, God, you scattered your people. You called the people, you scattered them, and now restore your people. And then it says, I'm a cupbearer, and I serve the king. I have this specific context. My life, for whatever reason, God put me in a place where I have access to the king of the Persian Empire. Now, the cupbearers of those days were very important. One commentator says this, Recent studies have shown the importance of this position, the cupbearer. In the ancient Near Eastern court, the cupbearer with his direct access to the king was regarded as important and influential. He had the king's ears. If the king was going to trust someone, it was going to be the cupbearer who had his life in his hands. For, and then quote again, for Nehemiah to have reached this position was an important achievement. It shows what influential positions some of the Jews of the exile had reached. It probably speaks to Nehemiah's character, his leadership qualities, his wisdom. Now remember, Nehemiah was an exile. Right? These are prisoners of war. And yet he rose to become one of the king's most trusted 
confidants, most trusted advisors. Now, although the text doesn't say it, and it's only a speculation, no one knows for certain, but some speculate that being a cupbearer to the king could mean that um, Nehemiah was also a eunuch, right? In which case, this would be a, uh, a difficult burden for him to bear amongst Israelites. So rather he intends to kind of let the people know in his memoir, that's an additional burden king, we don't know. But what we do know is he identifies himself as a cupbearer. And by doing that, what we get is that Nehemiah understands that where he is and who he is and what he's doing matters to the story. Do you guys get that? I was cupbearer to the king. So chapter 2, verse 1, begins with this story of how he goes back to Judah by the story of his encounter with the king as cupbearer. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your fat face sad, seeing you're not, you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and his gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? The ability for Nehemiah to get to that place where the king says, Nehemiah, what is your ask? What is your ask? For him, he recognizes that his role as cupbearer plays an important part. Now, let me make this as practical and applicable to you. I, I love, I want you to think this way. Think of Nehemiah writing his memoir. So, I mean, there's, you know, we could think that Nehemiah is journaling as he goes, but probably not. I, I don't think Nehemiah carried a scroll with him and he's like, you know, unfolds it, carries, carries out his whatever his writing utensil is, and he's just kind of writing as he goes. I think this is more of a memoir, so he's reflecting back, right? So he's kind of, thinking about all that happened, and he's telling his story of how God used him to rebuild the walls. And as he's telling this story, he comes to this prayer, how he learned about what was happening, how he wept, how he fasted, how he prayed. And at the end of that wonderful prayer, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. In other words, I think Nehemiah couldn't tell his story without mentioning this fact about himself. And I want to ask you, what are two, three things about you that you couldn't tell your story without describing? Because it's important, because I want you to know God cares about who you are and what experiences you've had. For me, for example, me as an immigrant, coming to America at seven years old, okay, that's a part of me that defines who I am, right? Being Asian in, in America, it's part of the core identity of who I am that it would be hard to tell my story of what God is doing without telling that part of me, right? The Korean church, the ethnic immigrant church is part of my story. That's another thing that I could not, I could not adequately describe all that God has done in my life and is doing in my life without identifying that part of my life, of who I am. How about you? 
what are some things in your life that defines who you are? Because it's good to know that those specific things are through the hands of God. I want us to be able to see God in those details. I want us to see God in those experiences, both painful and good, that made us who we are. Because it is seeing God in the details of our lives that we find confidence that God is sovereign and is working out all things. Christianity is not abstract. It is very real. It's rooted in our time and place. We are living in the 20... What century are we in? Oh, my God, just like that. Are we in the 22nd or 21st? Anyways, we're living in some century. 20, oh, my God, I just like that. I apologize. 21st century? Yeah, we're living in the 21st century. I thought we're in the 22nd century for some reason. I was like, that doesn't sound right. But we're in the 21st century. We're here for a reason, right? The church, this season of the church, T-H-M-C-E-M, whatever struggles, sometimes it's discouraging to see like, oh, I remember when it was full of people or at least the front rows were full of people, you know. Now it's like there were three people during the call to worship, not counting the praise team. And we might get discouraged, but no, no. If we see the details as coming from the hands of God, we find great comfort. And we're able to name Name the specifics in our life. Like the fact that you're male or female or you're Asian or your history or the pain or you're Latino or whatever you're, who you are is part of God's design for you. So don't lose sight of that. And I love that Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer. It is a fact that he could not ignore in telling his story. What are things about your life that you can't not share when you're telling your story, Okay. The second thing about Nehemiah was that, that we learned in chapter 2 is that just because you prayed and you're doing what you believe God is calling you to do, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be afraid. All right? There's, this, there's sometimes this notion that to be in God's will, to do what God wants you to do, means to be fearless and bold and like, I'm, I, like you could beat me and you could, you could curse at me and you could... Take everything I have, and I will follow God, and I will not be afraid. And be not afraid is, is probably the most often given commandment in the Bible. But do you know why be not afraid is probably the most given commandment? Because being afraid is very much a part of our reality. And I love this. Look at Nehemiah. Look what he says. And the king said to me, and this is verse 2, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but the sadness of heart. And he says, then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. I love that he included that in his memoir. Most people don't. Most people like to kind of pretend like they have it all under control. Hey, were you nervous when you, when you gave that speech? Nah, man, I was, I, I was good. I, I was all in control. No, I was like terrified, right? I love it that he includes that when the king says to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you look off today. You look sad. Are you liking some kind of conspiracy plot to murder me with poison in my wine? I mean, that could easily have been, right? Because Nehemiah says the part of my job, part of my job requirement is that I keep a happy face. Like I had not been sad before the king. 
I don't know how long he was a cupbearer. It seems like the king really respected and cared for Nehemiah because he asked him, how long are you going to be gone? We want you back. So there was some degree of affinity for Nehemiah. There's some degree of value for Nehemiah. And so we don't know how long he's been a cupbearer, but we do know that while he was a cupbearer all these years, he's never put on a sad face because a sad face could be misconstrued in those days. And when you misconstrue, when you're a cupbearer and your intentions are misunderstood or misconstrued, it could mean really fast. I mean, you just, you just don't want to have the stomach flu as a cupbearer, right? Like drink the wine. Ooh, you just, those are kinds of the hazards of the job that it came with, okay? Nehemiah knows that. But here's the thing. Nehemiah, I don't think, was trying to be sad to try to get the king's attention. I don't think that was the case because I think Nehemiah was very much aware that being sad was, was hazardous to your health. I think Nehemiah was sad because he'd been fasting for months, about four months now, fasting and praying. I don't know how, what, what season of life where you were really sad and depressed. I don't know if you ever went through a long season. I remember some seasons in my life where I was horribly, you know, discouraged or depressed. And in those days, you, you just face, just carries that weight. And I think Nehemiah was trying to do his job well and try to carry on a, on a, a you know, regular disposition, but the king noticed. King couldn't help but notice and says, Nehemiah, what, what's going on? You're not sick. And the king is kind of perceptive, and he says, this is nothing but a sickness of the heart. And then Nehemiah, Nehemiah first of all, is like, oh, he's scared. And then he writes on his memoir, I love that. I was afraid. And then he says, oh, long live the king. And then he tells him, why shouldn't I be sad? when my father's graves lies in ruins. Now, Nehemiah is also very sharp and wise. Like, you notice in his plea, he never mentions the city Jerusalem by name. This is just a side note, because Jerusalem was notorious for being a rebellious city. So instead of saying, why should I be sad when Jerusalem, and the king's like, Jerusalem? Isn't that the city that I just told them not to rebuild the wall 13 years ago because they're troublesome and rebellious? Is that, is that the city you're talking about? He doesn't say that. He says, like, oh, the city where my father's grave lies is in ruins. Now, of course, the king knows, but, but Nehemiah is, is just wise. He's wise. Being in God's will does not mean there aren't going to be seasons of fear and trepidation. Faith is not avoiding fear. It is in the midst of fear, not backing down because of the fear, right? Nehemiah doesn't move forward. He doesn't say, oh, my God, uh, king's got me, and I'm just going to smile and let it go. He, he steps in faith and asks the king what he wants to do. Faith is not avoiding fear or not being afraid, but it's overcoming that fear in faith and acting in the courage that God gives you. Be courageous, God said to Joshua. Not because you don't have fear, because in your fear... You trust God. And the last thing from this passage in chapter 2 that I love is, um, it's the last verse, right? Uh, so I, I want us to kind of juxtapose. If you look at juxtapose this part where in the middle he says, the king says, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah says, and so I pray to the God of heaven. So Long prayer or short prayer, it really, you know, a prayer isn't more effective because it's long. 
Because I'm sure Nehemiah probably only had what we call like an arrow prayer. It was probably like three seconds. It was more like, King's all, Nehemiah, what is it you want? And Nehemiah's like, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. Uh, oh, King, you know, that was probably his prayer, right? It wasn't grandiose. It wasn't like the prayer that he prayed before. He didn't journal this prayer. Like, I don't even remember what I prayed. I just know that I prayed. Like the first prayer, he's like, Oh, God of heavens, the Lord of this. And, you know, he remembers that prayer. He's writing in details. You said through Moses, your servant. And this one is just like, and I prayed. I was like, I was shaking. I was afraid. The king asked, and I prayed. But here's the thing. What does prayer do for Nehemiah? And what does prayer do for us? Prayer allows Nehemiah to say the last part of chapter 2, verse 8, which is what? And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of God was upon me. You know what prayer does? Prayer allows you to see more clearly that God is at work. Okay? When the king answers Nehemiah, Nehemiah doesn't go like, Whew, man, it's a good thing I took that communication class. Or I took negotiations 101. Like I was, dang, I, I hit it out of the park. Like when the king asked me that question, I was like, I was so savvy. I was like, I didn't mention Jerusalem my name. I was like, Lord, you know, king live forever. I was like so good with my, no, he doesn't say that. Why? Because he sees the king's response as an answer to his prayer. And because he sees it as an answer to his prayer, he says God's good hand was upon me. Prayer doesn't make God do things that he's not already inclined to do. What prayer does is help us see what God is doing. And I pray that that would be your testimony. Whatever God wants to do with THMCEM, when we pray, if we pray, we will know that whatever happens, good or bad, we know that the good hand of God was upon us. We won't say it was our good music, and, and the music was great. We won't say that it was because we have these lovely people in the congregation with all of our charm that we grew, Right? we're able to say God, good hand was upon us because we've given ourselves to God in prayer to align ourselves with God's story. You know, um, just want to end with that, going back to the first point about you being who you are. Um, there's a wonderful movie in the 80s that won Best Picture called Chariots of Fire, okay? Anyone see Chariots of Fire? Okay, now I say this, Chariots of Fire is worth about 10 sermons or maybe more, okay? It is an amazing movie. Now, I will confess that when I saw it in eighth grade, I was like a 12-year-old, I slept through it. It was like the boringest movie. I just went there because the music was good, right? I wish if someone could theme up that, you know, Chariots of Fire theme song, you'll know what I'm talking about, Okay? 
as an adult, when I saw Chairs of Fire, I was just like, <laughs> I just I've seen that movie like a dozen times. I, I do a little thing, small group of theology and film, and that's always in there. And that's in there because there's this line in there by Eric Little. He's a, he's a, a, a Scottish uh, missionary to China. He actually died in China as a missionary. His family was committed to the mission's work. And it was taking a furlough, and he came, and it was time of the Olympics, and he, he was running, and he was running, and he was going to compete in the Olympics, and his sister Jenny was distressed because he felt like Eric was wasting his time not being on the mission field serving God. It's like, Eric, and so she pulls him aside one day and says, Eric, you know, you need to go back to the mission field. You need to do what God's created you to do to fulfill his purpose. And this great line, Eric Little says, I believe God made me for a purpose. The mission in China, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made you for a purpose. Like Nehemiah, whatever his strength was, he was a cupbearer to the king, and God used that to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God made you for a purpose. God gave you the talents that he gave you for a reason. He gave you the temperament. He gave you your upbringing. Even the pain and the sorrows or whatever you may have gone through in life comes from the good hand of God to bring you to where you are today. And when you use the gifts and talents that God has given you to serve people and to serve his church, I hope that you will feel his pleasure. And I hope that you will see the good hand of God upon you as he works in and through us as he did with Nehemiah. Amen? Let's pray. Just take a moment to reflect a little bit just on the story of Nehemiah. Father God, we come to you with grateful hearts that you created us first in your image, then you redeemed us to be like your son. Lord, you gave us gifts and talents and you placed us in our life situation right now. There's nothing by chance. We are here because of your goodness, because your good hand is upon us. And now help us to see what you are doing in and through us and in and through this church and help us to be part of that wholeheartedly. We love you. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And may we be inspired and moved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.